Welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. Apologies if there's any slight delays or issues with the audio today. We're just trying a slightly different audio setup and seeing if that works a little bit better than Audacity, which we've used for the last couple of years and has, has worked really well, but switched to one that's a little bit easier to do some editing on. So I'm quite excited this week. There's been quite a few interesting articles that have caught my eye and looking forward just to running through a few of them. The first one was a really nice challenge to the way I tend to think about things. It was to do with skipping breakfast. I'll just grab the uh, name of it up. So it was called Habitually Skipping Breakfast is Associated with the Risk of Gastrointestinal Cancers, Evidence from the Kaluan Cohort Study. Uh, first officer Louis, last officer she. And what this was looking at was, is skipping breakfast associated, much as it said, with GI cancers? And then the short answer was that they found it was. And where is this relevant to myself? I've often talked repeatedly on the podcast about intermittent fasting, spending part periods of the day not eating. And personally, at the moment, I'm doing intermittent fasting where I'm missing my breakfast. So, is this evidence that maybe we're going the wrong way? And we, we talk, I talk a lot on this about trying to make sure I don't sit in an echo chamber, which is quite hard sometimes with, with the way we tend to collect in data from, from different trials and studies, because you tend to see things done by authors you respect and who, who sort of follow the same way you go. I mean, this was in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, uh, and it was an interesting article. I, it's not going to change my mind, but it's, it's really useful to see. And I'll look forward to seeing more from this group in the future. So it was based at a mining in a mining community in China. And it was a five year study looking at a wide range of ages, sort of 18 to 98 year olds, and just looking at whether or not they ate breakfast was associated with certain types of GI cancer, liver, stomach, colorectal. So why would it be, especially when for so much of the time we talk about how missing meals allows sort of this this sort of prompt and this reset and this self-cleaning mechanism to kick in and, and it should there should be less cancers because you're getting rid of any damaged cells because you're prompting your body to start doing that sort of self-cleaning, self-regulating mechanism? Well, their argument was, was different. They were saying, actually, skipping breakfast is, is linked to in increased irritation of the GI tract. And that inflammation over a period of your life will, will, will link to, be linked to more cancers. Um, now, the cohort study, so looked at, looked at different groups of, where, of those that generally had their breakfast, who, who sometimes miss their breakfast and who mostly miss their breakfast. And they tried to control it as best they can. Uh, I mean, it was too short for what they're doing. Five years wasn't long enough. They tried to control for money, how much they exercised, but they didn't quite. And there, there were some, some differences in there. They didn't have any H. pylori data. The two, the key things in my head, the difference between people that tend to eat breakfast in a working kind of blue collar population, the people that miss breakfast aren't your athletes who, who are trying to do some fasted training. They're people doing shift work. And they mentioned this in the study that actually they weren't able to control for uh, sleep. We know shift work is linked with increased mortality, roughly 10 years off your life if you work shift works your whole life. 
Why is that? Is it to do with the impact on the hormone cycle, circadian rhythm? Is it to do with the fact that you end up living off ultra processed food because you can't get good food at the times that you're wanting to be eating? But we don't really know. But clearly those two things are absolutely key. And they weren't able to control for them in this study. And they didn't really answer that what would be my concerns about how important they are in this study. So were the people skipping breakfast actually the people who were doing a lot of intermittent night shifts and the people that were just eating ultra processed food all the time? Both of which I would expect to be uh, linked to increased cancer and mortality. So not quite good enough, but a really interesting study and really useful to see it and re read around it. And hopefully they will dig more into the data. There will be a longer follow up. And, and it may be that we turn around and say, actually, whilst there are a lot of positives, we do need to, to be aware that for some people, there may be an increased in incidence of cancer and fasting isn't for everyone. The next study that we'll look at is to do with ketone esters and ketone bodies. So most people will be aware that uh, keto diets is a way of improving health, either through the impact on childhood epilepsy with the types of diet, autoimmune conditions, just a way of feeling good. And, and, and lots of people report how great they feel when they do a keto diet. Uh, that's not always particularly easy to do. And there's been interest about what about people that aren't really able to follow those strict diets? How can we get those same beneficial effects? For example, people who have a number of different health conditions, people who may have sort of problems with low body mass, Parkinson's, heart failure, and all sorts of things. And what's come up as a possible answer is, how about ketone bodies? So rather than make them produce them themselves through a certain form of diet, can't we just give them a drink and then they get the ketone levels? So this definitely caught my eye, this one. It was oral 3-hydroxybutyrate ingestion actually lowers circulating testosterone concentrations in healthy young males. First author's of Svart, last author of Graevolt, and published in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science in Sports. They had six cyclists and they got them to perform some exercise. Some they were the control, some were given saline water, some were, were given ketone esters and they just looked at the hormone changes. And they noticed that the testosterone, testosterone dropped during ketone, but they only measured over the first 270 minutes. This doesn't look at what the prolonged effect and the changes in the hormone profile are profile are as you as you come come off the train the acute training episode and just reading it off the cuff it feels as though this is going to be one of those ones where any time where you measure a hormone at, at, at a kind of single point you, you often get data that doesn't seem to make sense and it's because actually you've got to measure them in conjunction over a period of time because of the way all the feedback loops work i'll be interested to see what they find out in their longer studies the next article I've been quite hopeful for, I sometimes quite enjoy the this, is, it was in the Aspetar Sports Medicine Journal, and they get some really great guys to do writing in there for, for obvious reasons. It's a fairly wealthy journal. And 
I was hoping this would be a really interesting one on golf. I remember a few years ago reading a Tim Noakes article that talked a little bit about golf and it was a real challenge on actually high carbs are required for everyone and starting to push on to the what about sports that don't need these very high sudden bursts in energy and actually there might be something quite useful about being able to maintain your concentration um, when you don't constantly have food going in over longer periods of time and certainly for the military where I was working at the time there was a lot of interest in that this idea that oh okay so we don't need to be constantly be filling people with sugary drinks and sugary food which is what makes up most military ration packs actually there might be a way we can use the body and use more fats and fuels and they can last longer they're more tolerant of periods of not having access to food key in the military where logistics really decides how successful anything you you do is so that that was interesting i thought they might touch on it in this they didn't it was a lovely summary of nutrition hydration and golf written by amy donnell and graham close but didn't really add anything to what we what we know so far So the next article was in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and this was called Combined Hormonal Contraceptive Use is Not Protective Against MSK Conditions or Injuries, a systemic review with data from 5 million females. First author White, last author Whitaker. So this was on the background of, in the 1980s, there was a study that showed that there may be a link between the combined hormonal contraception and a protection against musculoskeletal conditions. Since then, there's been a Cochrane review and other studies that have shown that there may be a link between uh, stress fractures, bony injuries, and other forms of contraception, particularly the depot injection. So there is still this unanswered question about what do we advise our athletes um, to use as a contraceptive or for sort of cycle control and everyone seems to have slightly different views and it's sometimes difficult to know what to suggest and I I feel my my personal point is it it tends to depend on the athlete and seeing what they want talking them through what the evidence is for the different forms and trying to find out what fits in best with their aspirations and many times it will be what I really need to be sure about is when I will be in certain cycles of uh, of hormone, which we know are linked to different levels of performance, different carbohydrate requirements, and different rating of perceived shape and performance is different at different parts of the cycle. So if they can control those up and downs, particularly around key competitions or tests, they'll prefer that. Some people will will add into that. There may be a way to protect you from getting certain injuries. Essentially, this was another study saying that we shouldn't really be saying that. So do not prescribe combined hormonal contraception with the aim of protecting against certain injuries. The next one was about relative energy deficiency syndrome, which I think we're now all much more confident and comfortable with and this was the 2023 update on the 2014 description by the IOC's expert committee so it's again it was in the British Journal of Sports Medicine it's called the 2023 IOC consensus statement on reds in sport 
the usual people that you'd expect in there. First officer Mountjoy, Richard Budgett's in there, Anna Mellon, Louise Burke, Catherine Eckerman. So a really very, very well powered, very well respected group. And nothing if you've been following reds and noting down all the all the changes recently there's nothing too exciting in there what i liked about it was some of the tables in there that maybe just give a bit more consensus and and backing up to how are we defining it and how are we diagnosing it ultimately it still falls back to to diagnose it you need to break down your energy availability which involves an energy nutritionist or someone who's got training in it to do a diary on your food, take a diary and and assess and work out the energy requirements of of your training program and sit down with a spreadsheet and do, do working through to come out with your energy availability. And then the aim is how do you adapt it? Well, you change your diet um, or you change your program to, to improve where that energy availability level is now that's a huge amount of work and there is a lot everyone wants a set of bloods that will save them all that work it is it takes hours to do and takes a lot of training to be able to do it right so this again is essentially just a consensus statement saying there is no shortcut but if you are going to do an assessment without going all the way then here is a useful clinical assessment tools that will highlight what you need to be looking at the only bit i didn't think was particularly helpful in there and it felt very political was was a comment just about reds is something associated with low carbohydrate diets and if you read the list of authors you'll be able to see very quickly where that's come from and why it's in there a very powerful author feels that very strongly and i don't mind that feel very strongly about it that's great that's what moves science forward but then put in some data to back it up so whilst it's in the summary and it's in the abstract there's nothing to back it up in there there's no good data for that yet the author is an incredible scientist incredible clinician and may well turn out to be right but at the moment they have not provided the data for their point of view. The next article I really enjoyed, it was called The Effect of Fish Oil Supplementation on Resistance Training Induced Adaptations. And it was in the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition, first author the Helson. Uh, and it's actually one that made me go out and buy some fish oil supplements. So like a lot of these, it wasn't the biggest um, group. It was 28 people, a 10-week program, but quite well controlled for the two different programs. And what I really liked about this, which you don't often get in fish oil supplements, is they gave you the brand they used and they gave you the dosages. And they were good dosages. And what they showed that there was an improvement in one rep max upper body and relative one rep max lower body strength in the fish oil supplement group and it was enough for me to say yeah I'm going to give that a go for a short period of time why not I mean it's fish oil supplementation I should probably be getting more in anyway I should probably be doing it naturally rather than buying a supplement and we've talked before on this podcast about how many of the fish oil supplements are actually spoiled and and that's why I really liked that there was a brand in here because uh, I'm constantly trying to figure out which fish oil supplement brand might actually be good enough and not be a spoiled supplement 
Moving on to the next one. This was to do with coffee and tea. One to challenge me again. So often talk about the positives of coffee and tea consumption. This was what about one of the negatives. So this was called genetically predicted coffee and tea consumption and risk of intracranial aneurysm. First author to Zhang, last author to Louis. It was in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. So this is on the background of some past studies that, that showed that very high coffee and tea consumption can be linked with intracranial aneurysm. Now, obviously, we have also looked at lots of things that show that caffeine consumption is linked with improved mortality. So the name of the initial study was the Zhihi cohort study, and that was over five cups a day. So what these guys said is, well, let's try to figure out a bit more about that. So what they said is we know from the newer genetics of coffee drinking that certain genetic types drink more coffee. Now, we don't want to go out and ask everyone what tea and coffee they drink. So actually, we're just going to look at this huge lump of genetic data we have, these genome-wide studies we have access to on 400,000 subjects. And we'll say, anyone that has that gene is linked with increased coffee consumption. Let's assume they drink more coffee. And let's see if that genetic predisposition to drinking more coffee is linked with intracranial aneurysms. And it was. I think for me, what they, they haven't shown that coffee consumption is linked with it. What they've shown is that the genes that are associated with coffee consumption may also be the genes that are linked to hemorrhage. So a very interesting question about what, what, what's on that genetic cassette, what sort of grouping of genes are there. Not going to make me stop my coffee or change it. If I have a patient who has had a previous hemorrhage, will I be as confident after reading that about telling them to drink plenty of coffee? Probably not. Right, well, that's it from me uh, this week. Uh, Hope you have a super weekend and I will chat to you soon.